does that have a place in cornering? Sure. Is it the absolute? Do you have to do it all the time? No. I mean, if you looked at images from this past weekend's races in corners, and you're going to see some riders that's one foot up, one foot down. Greg Menard, you might see that. You know, in Sam Hill, you might see level pedals at the same corner. And so which one's right? Well, it's it's about outcomes. You know, what is the rider trying to do? What are they trying to achieve? What else has happened before and what's coming after? Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 135 features Christian Jackson again. This is part two. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I encourage you to do so, either before or after you listen to this episode. If you are a mountain biker and you live in the Southeast, or have ever had the desire to visit the Southeast, especially the Pisgah National Forest region, it is super hard to not get excited about all the momentum happening there. Once again, Christian delivers an incredible conversation about what's happening within Pisgah, the Grandfather District, the G5 Trail Collective, his take on donuts and bikes, and more. We need to thank Bryce Sherbach for connecting Christian and I to make what you're about to hear possible. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right. it will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. A huge thank you goes out to the multiple people who have placed orders for Cattle Mountain Apparel and Trail One components. This support definitely does not go unnoticed. I hope you are all enjoying the products that have been ordered. When you use the links found under the affiliate section at the Trail Effect website, a portion of the proceeds will help fund the Trail Effect podcast. Bonus, use the code TRAILPOD when checking out for a 20% discount on all Kettle Mountain Apparel and Trail One components. Now on to the Trail Effect with Christian Jackson. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Christian Jackson again. We're going to start part two. Part one left off with the Schoolhouse Trail, which is in Pisgah's grandfather district, correct? It is, yes. And that is, if hopefully you've listened to part one and you know what Schoolhouse is all about, but we're going to roll into the G5 project. The G5, is it the G5 Collective? G5 Trail Collective. Yep, G5 Trail Collective. And so we're going to roll into that and Christian's involvement that he has there because he's done some grant writing and stuff for them and he as you would have learned he's lived in the he's lived in Pisgah Forest for a lot of his life literally and so he's a he's a good person to have at their disposal for a resource to get what they need done so they can get these projects funded and built but how's it going today Christian? Uh, it's great good to see you again Josh. Yeah it's five days five or five or six days later five days later I want to say. Yeah. This is yeah. the first part two I've actually recorded that has actually legitimately a part two and not just a show split in half. And I did pay, I, I caught up on, on, we can, we can talk here quick. 
I did catch okay. up on, on donuts and bikes, although we're going to go into that later, but I did, this is a little preview for what we're going to talk about in a bit. Like I did really appreciate the fact that you, that you and Paul, your co-host went into the racing side of things since racing oh, cool. kicked off over the weekend. Yeah. That was a fun one. Yeah. It's thanks for listening. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's, I got into podcasting because I'm a huge fan of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's a great reason to get into it. Yeah. And so like that's I, mowed, cool. I mowed my lawn yesterday and that's what I listened to while I was mowing my lawn. Funny. Um, Paul, I, I told Paul I was on this going to be on, on your show and he texted me yesterday asking if it was released yet. Cause he was going to mow his yard and wanted something to listen to. G5 project. Let's kick this thing off. Let's do for those. I think most people are familiar with what G5 is, but do do your quick elevator pitch of what G5, what the G5 Trail Collective actually is. The G5 Trail Collective is a a grassroots trail advocacy group based loosely out of the old Fort area of North Carolina, which is the western edge of the Grandfather District, and the town of Old Fort is a um, a very small kind of one stoplight town on I-40, just just east of Asheville, uh, at the bottom of the escarpment. So the Blue Ridge escarpment starts there and rises to uh, Mount Mitchell, you know, the highest, the highest the highest peak in the east. And that area is historically significant because of uh, the Weeks Act, you know, the the first the first lands that were protected for national forests. And so there you got a Got a, a large swath there of, of national forest land, you know, dating back to 1916, and a lot of of um, historic trails in there that were probably you know logging industry uh, related, and so it, it it's been um you know from a, to put this in a mountain biker context here in trail context, it's it's between Asheville and you know other other areas, so it's kind of this this a, a bit of a in between zone for trails where the Asheville community uses it. You know, Kitsuma is probably the the most popular trail there, and, and Heartbreak, uh, which is a little more takes more effort to get to. But then to the east, you know, you're you're riding centers of the the metro areas of you know maybe Winston or Charlotte or you know maybe the Boone area. You know, folks will go go right go right there as well. But it, it's not hasn't historically been a its own scene, so to speak. And so the advocacy part and the trail maintenance, um, you know, for Kitsuma and, and heartbreak has fallen on, you know, probably a very few individuals, you know, over, over the years. And the G5 Collective, which is there, there's several podcast episodes about what's going on there. So I won't go into all the details, but really probably need to start with with Jason McDougall and and Camp Greer, um, which is a, a a camp, a traditional, traditional camp there in, in Old Fort on your way into Kitsuma, if you're familiar with how you get in there kind of near the bottom of heartbreak and Lisa Jennings with the uh, grandfather district Forest service are really kind of at the center of this concept. And the idea has been really a concept of how to organize a grassroots effort to reimagine the purpose of all the trails in that area. And there's many other players involved here, but I'm just going to center on, on those two. John Lane, we'll have to, we have to mention John Lane as well as a, an individual who was hired um, to be a, a trail, a trail steward in, in essence, which is one of the, a newer development for, for our district, which is, which is really cool. But, but Jason 
in discussing all this with him years ago was was interested in in providing more access for the trails area. It's a wonderful it's a wonderful area, but it's it's incredibly disconnected and incredibly rugged area. It's a steep escarpment. There's not a lot of trails other than a handful of just kind of social trails and the Mackey Mountain area has some trails. But um, they started doing some some trail work as as advocates there for heartbreak. You know, it's in their backyard and really started wanting to develop a way to con- make more connectivity happen. And the idea of connecting Heartbreak Ridge, which starts the Blue Ridge Parkway at about 4,000 feet, actually connecting it all the way to, to Old Fort or close to it became this dream uh, that they started pitching. Um, because if you ride that trail, which is a magnificent trail, but there's, it involves a lot of, to make it a, a loop, involves a lot of either double track or road, gravel road, parkway. And they started pitching this idea. And, you know, and Lisa was, you know, was working on the district to develop more recreation opportunities and was really wanting to purposefully engage with partner groups and empower partner groups to be become more robust in their activities. You know, you know for example, the, the, the alliance that we've already talked about with the schoolhouse and the Mortimer Project. And so working through this, this concept, the G5 Collective was born as a, as a way to, to think about the entire district because they, they wanted to, to, to reach out to the entire district, but they wanted to start in the Old Fort area. And in, in these conversations, the idea was that access to the trail and connectivity were, were themes that, were, that needed to be highlighted. And Old Fort historically has been, the uh, industry has left, has left Old Fort long ago, you know, kind of common mill town, textile town, North Carolina, where the industry has, has gone, gone away. And so there was, there was a lot of, you know, a lack of a sense of community within Old Fort. And so as, as the G5 Trail Collective came on board, we had other organizations like People on the Move Old Fort, a historically Black organization to designed to empower the Black community there, started to get interested in well, as well as local businesses. And the idea was then to get, to get, to get together and really look at creating a master plan for what would become 42 miles of trails out of the old Fort area, which is not, you know, we, on the surface, like we talked about uh, previously is, you know, an effort to bring people in, right. You know, this, this, this tourism model or formula that, that communities use. However, what distinguishes this plan with the G5 is that access inclusivity um, became primary themes. And so they started to reimagine, well, what, what could a, best version of a trail system in a national forest look like, you know, they start, they start planning this out conceptually of like, well, we need introductory trails for people that have never, that have never been into the woods before, you know, and when, when you start, start talking about the, you know, historic populations of who, who uses our public lands, you know, that demographic becomes very, very monolithic, you know, his, historically speaking, you know, the people that have the, the time, the money, and the ability to get themselves into the backcountry, you know, that, that demographics are sm- relatively small. And so they wanted to reimagine what would it look like if we did, did something different where we, we create um, a gateway trail system that is user-friendly, that people feel safe and welcome to go explore our, our national lands, right. And, 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 and to 
to have that experience that, you know, up to this point only, only you know, the, the intrepid had, had 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 access to. And so that became a central part of the beginning of the plan, the gateway trail system. And then from that, the vision was then to connect. How do you connect that piece, that concept with all the rest of the 42 miles? And so, you know, looking through this region, having more blue trails, intermediate trails that push a little bit farther into the backcountry, and then round, rounding it out with, you know, even more access and connectivity to some of the more difficult trails. And so they brought in Imba Trail Solutions and did, did the the master planning on the maps and then on the ground laying all this out so that they could get all of the NEPA approved kind of in one bulk action so that, you know, once everything was ready to go and momentum was building towards uh, the funding, they could hit the ground running, which is what they did. You know, they 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 put out the bid for the gateway trails and and I think within a calendar year had those first six miles done ish which was very ambitious. They had numerous trail builders on site at the time, building very fun, easy access, wide green trails, you know, which in North Carolina National Forest and the mountains here was was a new thing. It's super cool. You know, the energy and the, the excitement around that is building and growing. And and as of this coming Friday, which I think the 16th, Kitsuma Jr., what they were calling it, a Bernard Mountain will open. So it's an, another another descent over near the um, the Kitsuma area that'll be a single track, purpose built, multi use, modern. I think they're calling it a blue or dark blue. Uh, and Trail Dynamics um, took that one on Bernard Mountain. So so yeah, so there's there's a lot a lot of energy, a lot going on. It's it's um it's it's exciting and fun for us as as a as a trail community here in North Carolina. Yeah, it was interesting. I had not heard of Old Fort until it would have been 2021. And I think I may have seen some of the G5 Trail Collective stuff at that point, but it didn't really, that. I guess it didn't really add up to me. Because when I think of Pisco, I think of Asheville, and I think of the stuff over in, by Brevard. And sure. a, a friend of mine took a trip over that direction, and he came home just buzzing about the potential of Old Fort and the community that, that of what could be you know, and so that was pretty exciting because he travels, this particular individual travels a lot. He's made himself available to enjoy life, let's just say. Understood. <laughs> it's exciting to hear and people can do that. You know, <laughs> and so when he came back just buzzing about that, that was, that was pretty awesome. And so that turned me on to paying attention to the, to the G5 Trail Collective more. And then as you kind of alluded to, there are other podcasts and other, other media sources that have have gone into what the G5 Trail Collective is. Uh, probably most specifically, the Pisca podcast has gone to, into it quite a bit. So people that haven't listened to those shows in the Pisca podcast should. Absolutely. Yeah, including the, the Kitspo episode, which, yeah. is, which is defunct at this point, but it's, it's worth, that's, that's a, a pretty cool starting point from an industry, an industry perspective. Yeah. What they're trying to do there or attempted to do. Well, and we're going to go back to Bryce Sherbach here since he brought us together. Excellent. And you talked about, you know, a lot of elevation loss. Yeah, yeah, good. He brought up the ambitious plan to build a new trail near Black Mountain that would connect the Blue Ridge Parkway. Oh, between, uh, near Heartbreak. Yeah, the Blue Ridge Parkway to Old Fort via one massive descent. Yeah, so. On the high level, what does that actually look like for people that might not? be familiar. Yeah. So Heartbreak Ridge, you know, currently is this a 
topographic ridge that descends off the off the parkway and it's it's a again it's probably an old a lot of it's an old timber industry relic but it's a super amazing descent just in the fact that you know you've got one of the longer extended times on a but feels like it's a single track and part of this plan the 14 mile plan was the imba team found the opportunity on the an adjacent ridge called iron mountain or rocky mountain depending on exactly how you're how you're reading the map and it's another ridge that comes off the parkway yeah at over 4000 feet and continues can continues all all the way down to star gap and down into newberry creek and the team found it being incredible incredibly rocky incredibly remote and the end the end of it being exceptionally rocky which for around here is is a, is a kind of a big statement and the the idea here with this with this trail is that you know it, they lisa was very attentive to mountain bikers user experience needs and, and desires you know and that again back to the schoolhouse the schoolhouse piece here and d- there's a a common theme among some mountain bikers in the uh, in western north carolina that when trail work happens the good, the good trails go away right and you know that's that's not a new it's not a new idea but it's it's definitely something that's that still lingers here and there and and you know the part of the sentiment of that is that Pisgah, you know, and other mountainous regions don't lend themselves to easy trails. It's just, it's just the nature of, of, of the terrain. And, and so when you do bring a machine in and, and you want to do trail work, it, it's often, it, it, it can look very different than what people are used to. And anytime a trail gets changed, it, you know, it's something that's it's sometimes hard not to take personally, you know, or it's something the trail that you've been riding and, you know, we get our, our own ideas intertwined with how a trail should be sometimes and forget that other people use the trail too <laughs> right and you know that that's its own its own conversation but but lisa was very has been very good about trying to ensure that the user groups are getting what they want out of the forest because it's you know she sees her her role as as a almost a liaison officer between the the, the people that are using the forest and then what the forest standards have to be maintained right and trying to to empower and encourage, and she has me one day where I, I think we're out on schoolhouse. And she's like, "Well, what, you know, could we make a super Pisca trail? You know, a trail that's that is just it's you know it's all of Pisca. You know, it's like just a classic Pisca trail." I'm like, "Well, we, yeah, we we can you can do that, but it's you know we need the train and we need the technique and we need the time. You know, obviously the the money and." So you know they she wanted to to reserve that the C the C series trails which if you look on the old Fort map which I encourage everyone to to do the C series trails are going to be the you know the more difficult more difficult trails and so the the concept here is to basically take time in in the way that we did on Schoolhouse take the existing flag line that is that is that is on the ground and go through and basically micro design that trail so it, including figuring out which sections need to be hand built which sections could be potentially machine built what kind of structures need to be need to be created but really thinking about it from you know a backcountry more difficult rugged user experience you know starting from that that point and planning it planning the execution of that trail toward that end so that it turns into um, something completely unique 
and it, and it, it's its own trail, not just having its own trail character, but you know, being an experience that's not dupli- that hasn't been duplicated, or it's not duplicated anything else. And so that to me, you know, that was one of the things that really excited me about this about this project was the the opportunity to to help see that see that happen. And and there's a, there's a lot of energy behind that uh, from industry partners who want to get get on board and and helping make sure that that hap- that that happens and the great news is that you know the the forest service is 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 committed to that concept you know and that's that's something that it, that is you know for a lot of the mountain bike community is is very very exciting so that is a concept but let's talk about a trail that is going to become reality star gap Star, yeah. So the, that, the Star Gap. We were talking before before we actually hit record that there's actually a grant written that you were that you helped write to fund that yeah, this, one. Yeah, for sure. This past year, G G five Lisa and John and Jason and I met to, to look at grants, you know, for the upcoming year and help write the American Trails Legacy Trails grant that that funded. It's a cool grant. Just side, side note on this, where it was a. Grant that funded several different projects across the entire entire grandfather district. And so it funded part of Bernard Mountain. It funded some trail projects in Linville Gorge for hiking. So in the wilderness area. And it's funding some trails over on Wilson Ridge, which is on the eastern side of the of the district. And the way that we wrote that was to tie together the concept that the, the entire grandfather district is a watershed. And that watershed serves the Charlotte metro area and millions of people downstream from it, you know? And so we, we wrote, we wrote this concept of protecting, you know, using trails to protect the upper ends, the headwaters of of specific watersheds would then benefit this macro collective of people. And honestly, when we wrote it and I, I wrote the kind of the, the intro that tied all this together you know, did the the pitch. I'm like, I think it's a good idea. I'm not sure that we're going to get funded from this. It's, you know, is, is this, is this really what they're after? And it did, it got funded and, and, you know, the trails on the ground now, which is, which is amazing. And part of that was also writing uh, a recreation trails program grant specifically for Heartbreak Ridge extension, which connects Star Gap, which is where Heartbreak Ridge currently ends. And it ties it all the way down to uh, the Fauna Floor Trail, which is a state trail that is aiming to connect Morganton to, to Asheville eventually. And it currently is around Lake James and into uh, parts of it are in Old Fort. And it goes through Camp Greer. And so this three-mile extension of Heartbreak Ridge was accepted for the the, the RTP grant for this, this cycle year and will be will be funded. Uh, and I think the bids will go about or this will be, I don't even think it's even announced that, that grant's even announced yet, but it's 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 it uh, it has been awarded. Is this where we totally change gears? We can totally change gears. Let's get into donuts and bikes. Since it's early on a Monday morning. I could go for, for a donut. I could sure. go for a really good blueberry donut right now. Like a blueberry cream cheese donut. Oh, wow. That uh, sounds decadent. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we used to, have, you know, I don't, it doesn't, uh, this is one of the big things that change is hard, right? And so, and things change in communities. And we used to have this place called Mr. D's Donuts here in La Crosse and People that have been around the cross for probably, I mean, it's been 20 years maybe since it went away, maybe 15, probably closer to 20. But they used to have it, it's right on the college campus. And they used to have the night walk up window 
where oh, you yeah. could get like donuts as they're getting made at two in the morning on your way home from the bar. Like talk about an epic ex- way to finish the night. <laughs> those are the, those are the best donuts. Yeah. Fresh, fresh made from a window <laughs> that yes. you walk up to. That's, pr- that's pretty cool. Unfortunately that, that donut shop does not exist anymore. And, but I know it's uh it's memories definitely still live on. For those that <laughs> got to take advantage of things like that. That's awesome. But let's go into your uh, donuts and bikes podcast and kind of the, what you do with the podcast, but on a bigger picture, you know, you talk a lot with your, with your co-host on there on how skills, cause I guess we unclo- disclose this in part one. You're a level, is it level four? Four, I always get fours and four hundreds mixed up, but. I'm a level four PMBIA, Fresh Mountain Bike Instructor Association certified coach, but I'm also a, a, tra- a senior trainer for the organization. So I, I train trainers as well. In your co-host with Donuts and Bikes, was he one of the founders of PMBIA? For sure. Yeah. Paul Howard uh, is, is my co-host. He is the, the technical director of PMBIA and one of the founders. Yes. Which started in Whistler. Correct? It did. It, it, it did. He, he, he founded it in, in Whistler, Darren Butler, Endless Bikes. Shout out to him as well. Kind of got together to create that concept. And Paul, interestingly with, with, with Paul, part of the story began, part of it, not the whole story, but part of it begins actually in North Carolina when he, he was um, spending summers at a, a summer camp just down the road from where I was at Outward Bound. And he was running mountain bike programs. And they, they treated the camp, uh, treated mountain biking like ac- another activity like archery or, or waterfront or whatever, you know, kids signed up for it. So they, they had, you know, these, you know, every, I don't know, every two hours, you know, had 10 kids that would show up for mountain biking, you know, all summer long. And so in that, in that process, he, he started to develop this, you know, some concepts around how to teach, you know, how to, how to teach, teach mountain biking and kind of long story short, the, the origins for the skills and, and, the, and the pedagogical techniques that we use um, were had a were marinating at least at least at, the, at that point for him, and then you know became the organization in in the, in the mid to mid two thousands. So did you two know each other then or not? We we did not. We we knew some. We found out we we found out in the past couple of years that we knew some mutual. We had some mutual friends connected through climbing in that in that area, and and but um yeah, we didn't know each other. It was, it was wild. There's Again, back in the, you know, the early 2000s, you know, the mountain biking and taking kids mountain biking, it wasn't what it is today here, here in North Carolina. It wasn't quite the, the community that it is. But I, I eventually took a, well, when I started teaching the university, I was asked to develop a PE mountain bike class. And at that time I was, I'm like, well, surely, surely by now mountain biking has to have something like the ACA or the AMGA you know, where there's a certifying body that there's a standard curriculum and, you know, and I started, started looking at, cause up to that point, any of the teaching of mountain biking that I did had, had been from, you know, William Neely's Zen and the Art of Mountain Biking book, cartoon book, if you remember those, those, those things or stuff that we just made up, you know, like one of the outward bound protocols was day one, you taught your students how to fall off bikes, you know, like you had the judo roll, you know, and these other over the bar, how to get over the bars. You know, and why, why do we do that? Well, cause kids fell off their bike all the time, you know, and why do they fall off the bike? Cause we're taking on trails 
that were way too hard for them because we didn't have any sort of sense of guiding protocols, you know, back then. Or trails that were that easy. There were trails that, yeah, Outward Bound was full of protocols where we would basically go up downhills and down the uphills. <laughs> you know, just to, that was our safety management practice at Bisco. But anyway, I, I did a bunch of, re- you know, did my my research and found the PMBI, PMBIA and somehow had a phone call with Paul and he encouraged me to talk for quite a while. And he, I think 2013, probably encouraged me to come take a level one course. And I did at Blue Star, Camp Blue Star, where he had, he had worked and he had been coming back in the summers to train, to train their staff and run PMBIA courses. And I, I took this level one you know, at that point, I'd been riding bikes for over 20 years and it blew my mind. I mean, I absolutely, I took this, this level one course. And I'm like, in three days, I knew more about my own riding, let alone how to teach, but I knew more about my own riding than I'd learned, you know, ever, you know, and it was, I was just astonished at how amazing it was. And that started my journey into, into the PMBIA and, and a relationship with, with Paul. And I then did my level two you know, in subsequent, subsequent tra- trainings and, um, became a trainer as well. And, and so I've been running, been training instructors, um, here in North Carolina and elsewhere, you know, kind of all over the place, um, for, for since 2015. And now I'm working to train our trainers as well. So we we've trained up, we've got three here in North Carolina that are, that can run level one courses. We've got one in Virginia and others here in the in the east as as well. So we've got a starting to develop a bit of a presence here in the in the southeast for sure, and in, in the in the east because it has been you know, up to this point, you know, based out of Whistler, and and the bulk of our trainers have been based out of out of Canada, and that's it's spreading not just the U.S. now, but but around the world. We've had courses in Japan recently, and Iceland, and Spain, all over the place. If I'm not mistaken, Paul also travels to Australia. He does. Yeah. So he's been going down to training. We've got a huge presence in, in Australia as well. And so he's been training our, our trainers in, in the Southern Hemisphere um, as well. It's funny. Like I've usually think of things like the endless summer when, and tie that in with surfing. Mm-hmm. But like in the last year, it's really tied into like for mountain biking for me, it's like that would be the, the best way to spend a year is North, you know, the Northern Hemisphere during our summer and then spending the rest of the year, you know, in, in Australia or New Zealand, right. Cause they're the communities down there in terms of trails are just exploding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That'd be really cool. That'd be really cool. Let's stay on the instruction side of things. One of the things, and I just, this just popped into my head again, it's been popping in my head a lot lately that it seems like mountain biking more generally speaking is kind of on a parallel path that maybe Alpine skiing was on in like the sixties and seventies. And I say that in terms, I I used to say that in terms of the way we are as far as the age of the sport and when it actually started to take off, you know, and how, how, how alpine skiing, which I'm, and I say alpine skiing because this is before snowboarding was a thing is, is where I'm going with this. Sure. Yeah. You know, snowboarding just hadn't, I mean, maybe it happened with the snurfer or whatever it was, but we're, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It bindings weren't a thing. Boots weren't a thing, you know, but it seems like we're now getting, and that was about. I think alpine skiing was more, more or less maybe 30 or 40 years old in the, for the most part in the seventies. I mean, some people might say it started in the 1800s, but we'll, <laughs> that's a whole different story. 
Right. You know, but it seems like, like for me, it seems like that's when trail development will say in the Alpine skiing world to really start taking off. And you saw these little, you know, these little ski areas popping up everywhere, right? Especially in the Northeast, especially in the upper Midwest. But it seems like that's kind of where mountain biking is also, because it is like that with trails now, in my opinion. But it seems like that's where it is with instruction too, because I'm sure the PSIA, the skiing side of things, I'm sure skiing was, you know, at a similar stage where like, oh, we got to like figure out a curriculum on how to actually train people, right? For sure. Yeah. We, there's a lot of parallels between uh, the PMBIA, you know, and the, and the ski industry, the, the history of the ski industry. And a lot of our, our, our senior trainers, you know, tech team members and board members are affiliated with the uh, Cassie in Canada um, as well. And, you know, kind of senior, senior staff with, with them as well. So we, we do have a lot of, a lot of connection there, but I think you're, you're spot on with this, the, the history part. And what, what's fascinating to me is that, you know, skiing took off popularity wise, you know, it's popularity um, in one sense due to the advanced technology of skis themselves. Right. And so when we start to have shapes and wider skis, skis that are easier to, to actually turn, more people are willing to try it. Because prior to that, it had been something that, you know, you had to be very, again, very intrepid to, you know, you know, in, in the maybe the 1930s to go skiing, you know, it was something that it was very physical. You're skinning in somewhere and then trying to figure out how to use your some technique to get these these narrow long skis through some powder but yeah so that things change it and i think there's that necessitated then the need for instruction because more people are are coming to are coming to go ski at your ski hill your local ski hill you've got parabolic skis you know now that are that are you know being publicized as being easier to turn you know and, and more user-friendly easier bindings, easier, you know, rear entry boots, all these things that make the actual, the barrier to, to learning this, this skill easier or reduce, reduces the, the barrier. And I think we're starting, we're seeing something very similar in mountain biking as well. You know, modern mountain bike, you know, something off the, off the rack right now from a shop is so drastically different than what we were riding in 2000. Or even even ten even ten years ago. Yeah, the last five years have actually I think have been really changed a lot. Yeah, you know if, if you think about you know for everyone that's been riding modern bikes for quite a while, if you're going back and riding a '99 a 2000 era bike with V brakes and an 80 mil elastomer fork or whatever, and a 120 mil stem. They had 120 mil stem. Yeah, and one one nine five tires. You know, it's it's a completely different game, and so. So yeah, so there, there's that piece of it too, but you know, also just the we could there's a similar something similar is happening in trails as well. So the 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 actual the construction of trails and how we're designing for you know very specific user experiences. Back to flow trails are you know, a good good example of this, where you know modern flow trail on a modern bike and things are things are pretty good. You know, if you're if you're a new rider and you can see development happening, and so yeah, so from the skill side, then well, how do we create a, you know, create a system that's organized and has progression at its, at its center. You know, how do we, how do we develop a rider to understand how to use the bike and their body together to create, to make something happen on the trail? And yeah. And so we're, we're seeing, seeing more, more of this happen, you know, for, from either PMBIA, we're certifying instructors to do this, but we're seeing all sorts of, you know, guiding and coaching organizations pop up 
there's several here in North Carolina now. You know, it's the the ski hills that have mountain biking in the summer typically have instructional programs. Um, summer camps, you know, anybody that's teaching mountain biking is 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 seeking out, you know, certification, you know, for their for their staff because it it is becoming more of an industry standard now, much in the way that uh, the ACA and the AMGA are for for uh, canoeing and climbing. Yeah, and I think you know on the on the ski area slash uh, now mountain bike area topic, like if you're gonna, I think the most successful business business model with that is. I'm going to say the Highland bike park business model for those that are familiar with that place up in New Hampshire, which is like, we can offer these trails to the hardcore people, but the reality is we need to grow our, our client base, our user base, if we're going to be a successful business model. So offering rentals, offering service and offering skill instruction is, are such key ingredients to have a successful business. For sure. And you see that all over it at LiveServe, you know, all of Serve parks that I've been to the vast majority of your ridership are not the upper end. Yeah. And so that there is a recognition of that. And it's, it's a very welcome, welcome thing to see where, you know, we're, we're actually building trails, you know, for, for the folks that are wanting to get into the sport and in a way that they can have fun and it's not just a green trail, but it's a fun trail. It's a fun trail. They can have a great time on and progress to the blue trail if they want to. Right. And so it's, it's it's not a one-way progression where you have as a mountain biker you have to become a black diamond rider right well you just want to be a mountain biker and have fun you know whatever that means means for you let's go into your uh and back into donuts and bikes in the podcast and one of the things you talk about regularly with your co-host is that skills shouldn't be looked at as absolutes and i'm gonna and i'm gonna end there because there's all sorts of different episodes that you guys tie this in on and we can speak at more of a high level and for those that want to get into the details I definitely recommend t- listening to parts one and part two of the turning. And then maybe if, there's a lot more there, but that's, that's probably the one that people get most wound up on. It, it is. And besides clips versus flats. Cause if you really want to wind people up, talk about clips versus flats and that'll, that'll just like blow up the internet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we we're going to talk about not looking at things in absolutes. Oh yeah. And I think corning is a good place to start. And, and in a lot of ways, this, this podcast, the, the, the idea is, the ideas have been around for a while. So, um, you know, Paul, Paul and I have for, for quite a while have talked, talked through this, the, the cornering, you know, and how to teach, how to teach cornering, not necessarily how to corner, but how to teach cornering for, for quite a while. And this kind of started with looking at what are people, how are people teaching this? And when, if you, if you just do a, a YouTube search on how to corner, how to videos, and the list is huge, which that's, that should tell you one thing, right? If, if, if the list of how to do this is huge and it's all different, you know, that, that should just, as, as, a, as a learner, like that, that should be a piece of information that you, you file away, but everybody's, you know, te- teaching the, how to, how to do this differently. And the result, you know, the, the results are we take our bike through a corner, right? But there's all these different ways to do it. And anytime as a instructor, we get into absolutes or teaching this is the way to do it we might see success in the moment but we're not necessarily creating a learner that continues to learn and becomes adaptable in the sense that they're able to apply new techniques to new situations and and grow grow into things and so you know for instance 
a starting point for a lot of people could be foot up, foot down, you know, or level, level pedals, or, you know, one foot up, one foot down for cornering. And this is, this is the absolute, how we do it. Right. And this is, this is where you start. And does that have a place in cornering? Sure. Is it the absolute? Do you have to do it all the time? Well, no. I mean, if you looked at images from this past weekend's races in corners, and you're going to see some riders that's one foot up, one foot down. Greg Menar, you might see that. You know, in Sam Hill, you might see level pedals at the same corner. And so which one's right? Well, it's it's about outcomes. You know, what is the rider trying to do? What are they trying to achieve? What else has happened before and what's coming after? And if we're just sticking on that absolute, then we're we're not creating a resilient, a resilient rider that's open to truly open to learning. And so that's why we we really approach the podcast when we're talking about skills from this idea of pros and cons, because we we want to create adaptable riders that are creative, uh, that can solve their own problems based on some fundamental principles, which are which are the skills. You know, and so often we talk about with cornering, a primary starting point is being being stable. You know, how do you create stability through body movements, through bike movements in a in a corner? You know, and if the answer to that question then is it depends on your speed, the size, the shape of the corner, the the texture, the surface, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so when we when we start as a coach talking in those terms. The outcomes are very different than if we say at the absolute is foot up, foot down, or twist your hips, or you know whatever whatever it is that that is. Because the, the reality is, it's you know it has to do with stability, it has it has to do with braking, has to do with your line choice, it has to do with your vision, it has to do with how much pressure you're generating, and then ultimately, you know the timing of all these pieces when when are you doing all of these things and in what order and into what to what intensity uh to achieve to achieve an outcome you know to go through that process is a as we you know paul jokingly not jokingly says in the in the first episode that might be 86 different lessons right <laughs> right so and so yeah so that's our approach to you know using cornering as, as one example there that's our approach to the podcast and and man it's it's been a lot of fun to to get a little dorky about, about these things with, with Paul, for sure. That's the beauty of podcasts is you can actually go into the details and the nuance of all this stuff, whatever the topic is. It could be, I mean, you literally could be any topic when it comes to podcasts. You could have a podcast on, I don't even know what, like pygmy goats. It's, it's, pro- it's probably out there. <laughs> but yeah. And I know like back on cornering, like I, th- I've, I'm constantly thinking about cornering now more than ever because of, of tra- I'm transitioning away from more, I used to, do a lot of endurance based riding. And now I have recently got into more in, enduro type riding. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I think about cornering a lot more because, you know, it's one thing to think about cornering when you're out on your bike for hours. It's another thing to think about cornering when you're trying to get down a trail in minutes. Yeah. And I'll find myself, sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll pull a foot off the pedal. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll, you know, sometimes I'll be foot up, foot down. Sometimes I'll be level pedals. And it's, I don't, whether I'm doing it right or wrong, it, kind of is like how I feel in that moment and how I feel like what tool should I pull out of the toolbox? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, again, it's, it's back to, to outcomes. You know, it's the, the outcomes are results of your, of the decisions that, that you make. And it's pretty cool to think about 
the construction of, you know, back to trails just for a second here, the construction of, of turns, you know, and, and how, what that means for, for our skills. Cause you know, we, we, some areas we have very predictable, like constant radius, constant radius turns, you know, and even in them, like there might be, you know, a primary way for an intermediate rider to go through, go through that turn. But if you sat and sat back and watched, you know, that one turn at a bike park for, for a day, you're going to see, you know, hundreds of different ways that riders are going through this, you know, and you see some of the, your, your fat, your fast people coming through it and you're going to see some creativity and some style, you know, and some, some outcomes that are very different than other, than other riders, you know? And so that's one of the, the wonderful things about mountain biking is that we, we can always grow. We can always grow our skills. We can always grow our skills. So I, I did recently, I heard, um, somebody told me they hadn't mastered cornering yet and they're relatively new to riding and they, they hadn't mastered cornering yet. And I'm like, huh, <laughs> I've been riding for 30 years and I definitely have not mastered cornering yet either. I was going to say, <laughs> neither is Richie Rude. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I, and, and again, I think that, you know, we talk a lot about in, in the, in the podcast about um, goals and, and goal setting in, in, in process, you know, and what, what the, what process is versus, versus, um, a result. And to me, that's, what's great. Uh, what I love about, about coaching and writing is, is that the process becomes, becomes what's interesting and we continue to learn, we t- continue to grow. And just when we think we've got something really dialed, you know, something, something new happens. So we might, we might regress a bit or we might progress a bit. And it's, it's, it's very cool. Well, and that, that person that's talking about mastering cornering to them, that might mean to that person feeling comfortable going through a corner. Exactly. Yeah. You know, confidence, um, which we, we've dig into it's what mental skills is something that we're really, really big on understanding more, more about in the, in the podcast, but you know, confidence is probably what this, this individual or anybody that's saying this is probably talking about and, and feeling like you're in control of the bike is paramount. Right. And that's, that is why skills-based instruction is so critical is because we can, you know, skills, something we can get better at. And when we break it down into break down riding into simplest parts, we can measure progress that way. You know, can we be, can we be stronger as a rider through a more centered position coasting downhill? Yeah. There's things we can do with the body to make that happen. You know, can we become more confident because we can move the bike more? you know, in various situations and, you know, expand our range of movement. Yeah. We can, we can, we can progress and develop that and doing all these things. We can train riders to be stronger, more confident riders, you know, and and maybe even, you know, through that, through that learning process that spills over into their other parts of their lives, you know, where they, they, they took on something really difficult, you know, like learning to ride a steep slab and going going through the process over you know months of time to ride something really steep and see the results of that then that may then reflect back to other areas of the life where they have to take on something hard and 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 enjoy the process of 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 going through the the pieces of it and that right there is a perfect way to uh wrap this part of that up of the donuts and bikes podcast part of this podcast up if i said all that right <laughs> <laughs> Right on. I do have a question that I ask pretty much every guest that I've had on the show, especially guests that are mountain bikers. 
And you live in a mountain bike community, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a qualifier in there. What do you look for in a mountain bike community that isn't your own? Say you had to plan a vacation wherever, what are the things you're going to look for to make that happen? Or say you had to even worse or better, for what, depending on how you look at it, you had to move from your community for whatever reason. What are, the, what are some of the key ingredients that you would look for if you could look anywhere for a, for a mountain bike or trail community? Oh, man, that's a great question. It's a great question. Two things that come to mind that would be at the starting point, and one leads to the other. The first thing I, I'd look for, or that I do look for when I go to a mountain bike community is the stoke. You know, like when I come into, when I travel for training or coaching or whatever, and I come into community, that's the first thing that I, I, I try to find. And it's usually very apparent, you know, who has the stoke, what are they stoked about? And that's exciting to me, you know, when, when folks are, are, are just chomping to show you their trails, you know, that's just, that's such a, that's such a cool sign of, of investment within the community, you know, where they've, they know they've got a good thing, whatever that thing is, they, they love it and they want to share it and they want you to be part of it. You know, that's, that to me is one of the the center parts of, of the mountain bike community is, is, is that, that very thing there, which, feeds into like this, this, um, this inclusivity piece, you know, they want, they want you to be, be a part of that. And it's something that I think as, as mountain bikers that we, that we, we, we do really, we do really well, we can do really well, you know, aside from, from those things, I like to see creativity in, in trails. Um, you know, so it's something that like a trail that I hadn't seen before, you know, it makes me think about riding differently, you know, the funner trail for some of us here on the funner trail in Bend, Oregon kind of comes to mind where I was out there for training and the locals wanted to, wanted to go, to go show us that trail. And you know, it blew my mind. I was like, this is, this is incredible. You know, this is so much not like what I was expecting and just, it keeps going and changing and it, you know, makes it super fun. Yeah. So stoke, stoke people that are, that are wanting, wanting to show you their, the goods and the, you know, the creativity of the trails themselves are at the very top of my list for sure. That's awesome. Those are, I love listening to the answers for those, for that question, because everybody's got something different. It's their own. And that's what I, that's the reason why I asked the question is because you know, at some point I hope, you know, people can come back and, and listen to podcasts like this one and be like, okay, what do we want to do? If we're going to reimagine a community, what are the things that we need? Yeah, for sure. That's, yeah, that's a great, a great way to, great way to think about it. Well, who do you want to thank? What kind of closing well, comment do you want to have? <laughs> let's, let's, let's think Bryce. Yes, we got to thank Bryce Sherbach. He's the one that brought us together for sure. Yeah, I've always, I've always enjoyed riding with him. And his, his writing, writing, writing is amazing. He's a great writer, rider, is a writer. As, as a journalist, man, he's, We're he's mixing incredible. D's and T's right now, just to be clear. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. His journalism, his journal, his journalism is, is, is impeccable. Love the way he thinks about things and, and brings, brings the best out of people, brings the best out of communities. So huge, huge shout out to them. And Josh, thank you for having me on. And it's been an honor to talk with you and share some ideas. Yeah. Let's, let's talk on Bryce just for one second. Okay. He really caught my attention when he wrote, it was a pink bike article back in, I want to say 2016, maybe eastbound and down. It's a great series. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the his first one of those, and that's actually what turned me on Knoxville as a community. Like that, like he really captured my attention with that. So we get we definitely have Bryce to thank for things like that. Yeah, I remember reading one of those early ones, and I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> and then I get a get a phone call from him, and he he actually came to came to Boone for one of those eastbound and down. That's where we first got a ride, meet the community, and yep, impeccable, impeccable dude. Christian, I really appreciate your time today with this. We we did this over two things and you remained super flexible in terms of like actually getting this scheduled and recorded. Both of us have, my schedule's gotten definitely way harder to do stuff with. And as we've alluded to or outright said, you have a lot of stuff going on. So I really well, appreciate pleasure. that. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Chat again soon. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will feature Philip Darden the executive director for Sorba, the Southern Off-Road Mountain Bike Association. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliate links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.